Conversation with Tommy Weber. Pro and college baseball coach Tommy Weber brings you cutting-edge interviews and thought-provoking commentary in a weekly podcast dedicated to baseball, sports, current events, and the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and TommyWeberBaseball.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TommyWeberBaseball. It's time to get the conversation started, so here's your host, Tommy Weber. Sir, welcome to the conversation with Tommy Weber from the heart of the greatest city on the planet, New York City, Tribeca, my hometown. We are here on yet another rainy, early, late spring uh, day where Mother Nature is just not relenting. Um, I cannot recall a spring uh, in a long, long time where we have had this kind of challenge weather-wise affecting anybody who's outside, especially uh, college baseball players and major league baseball as well. Um, never before have I heard the conversation, uh, so much turn to the weather, uh, especially on the major league level where usually having such, uh, technologically advanced fields, the drainage systems they have now are, are almost impossible to rain a game out, but, uh, yet it's on everybody's mind. It's affected a lot of ball clubs. And, uh, today we're going to talk to, uh, our guest, Rich Catino. Rich is the beat reporter for the New York Mets for ESPN. 98.7 FM. He's a, uh, like me, a lifetime New Yorker who has covered the Mets for over 30 years. Um, he's covered the Super Bowl, World Series, the Masters, which is something I would really like to get his take on since uh, uh, I think that's one of the really, truly unique sporting events uh, in the world. Rich Catino, welcome aboard. Great to be on your show. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. A little uh, Sinatra in the background, a tribute from one New Yorker to another. Um, I know you just got back from Atlanta. We're going to lead off with, uh, you know, your your um, your guys, the New York Mets. Um, fantastic start to the season. That has almost become a distant memory. Uh, the Mets are now basically... Are hovering around 500. They're injury riddled, and I would say uh, that you could make a case for the season being at a crossroads. That these next two weeks could be critical uh, to their survival. Talk to us. Uh, give us the temperature of the team as you see it, and where they need to go from here. Well, it was an interesting series in Atlanta because so much went wrong for the Mets: two walk-off losses, injuries. But the bottom line is they split the four-game series, and I think that. That's a testimony to how much they still believe in each other. Look, I think athletes are human beings like everyone else. And I think that, you know, all the injuries, especially players that were on the team last year, they feel like they're seeing last season all over again. I have a little bit of a different take on it. I see 2015 was almost the same exact scenario. Mets got off to a big, big start in 15. In fact, there were 10 games over 500 at 13 and three, similar to their start. Then they started to move down towards 500, never really got below it. Hitting was a problem. They had injuries in the pitching staff. They were able to bring up some players in midseason like Steven Matz and Michael Conforto that helped them. And then they made the big deal for Cespedes and even added some other things beyond Cespedes 
in the bullpen and Addison Reed and Tyler Clipper that helped them get to the World Series. Obviously, Daniel Murphy's hitting as well. Um, I do think that this team is still a team to be reckoned with, and I do think that they have a legitimate shot at the playoffs. And it's really keeping the health of Noah Syndergaard and Jacob DeGrom, Jerry's Familia, Michael Conforto, and Todd Frazier, and keeping those guys healthy and playing hard, and then understanding where Jay Bruce is right now. I think the plancher for Shaq is hurting his swing, and it's hurting his fielding. But I do think that this team has enough talent when you to win a, enough games to get a playoff spot. And I say that because when you have two horses at the head of the rotation like Syndergaard and DeGrom, it does cover up a lot of other things. When you have closers like Familia, we haven't even seen what Swarzak can give them on the bullpen. Let's have some pitching depth, and we're going to see it tonight. Seth Lugo in the rotation. I think one of the things we all forget about, everyone remembers 15, 2015. But in 2016, the reason the Mets got to the playoffs was they got Seth Swiss back in mid-August. That was part of it. But it really was Robert Gazelle and Seth Lugo in this rotation giving the Mets solid start after solid start and got them a wild card spot. So I do think that Lugo in the rotation is a good deal. I think he's going to stay in the rotation even when Thor comes back. And I think it's going to be a, it's going to be interesting to see whether Zach Wheeler, Steven Matz, or possibly Jason Vargas go to the bullpen. But I think Lugo is going to stay in this rotation even when Syndergaard comes back. Do you think the Mets could do this uh, reasonably? Of course they can until they're mathematically eliminated. Anybody can. But do you think they can reasonably do this if – Cespedes has an even more prolonged stay on the disabled list than anticipated. I think it's a great question. I think it would be very difficult for them to do it without the big bat of Cespedes. Um, I do think Jose Batista is an interesting guy. Um, I still think he's got a lot of baseball left in him. He's in great shape. He's hit really well for the Mets since he's come up in a very small sample size. I think having him on the roster will help until... Obviously, Frazier comes back from the right-hand side. Wilma Flores is on the DL, too, as well. Uh, but it would be very difficult for them to make a playoff spot if, say, Cespedes is out for another month, say. But I do think that he's showing progress, although Sandy Alderson said it's not going as quickly as they would have liked it to have gone. I don't know if that's a veiled statement directed at Cespedes or whether I'm just looking at, looking at it too analytically. But they need him to win. I mean, he's one of the top five, six sluggers in all of baseball when he's right. And I think that, you know, obviously they have to try to tough it out. But, you know, you look in the division, the Washington Nationals are the same thing. They haven't had Daniel Murphy all year. And they're going to get him back in mid-June and really give the Nationals a lot of credit. They started out poorly, and they're now, you know, in first place in the NL East. And obviously um, – playing really, really well, winners of their last six. And I do think that the Mets, with the current constitution of their roster, can be an 88 to 90 win team. And I believe that opening day, and I still believe it, but they got to get some of these people healthy and that will help them. And the other thing is Steven Matz, despite leaving the game early in Atlanta this week, the last two, three starts, he's been good. And he looked like the Steven Matz for the first time in a long time that I saw in 2015. So that could be another real positive for the Mets going forward here. 
I agree because if you have the two big horses up front, you just need, you don't even need Stephen Matz to be Koufax. You just need him to be good. You need him to be serviceable. You can't you know you can't have those three and four inning outings. Uh, and if he can pitch the way he has and avoid injuries, I mean he's not going to go on the disabled list. I, don't, I, I I guess what do they have? They have a blister or he had a fing, he had, they have two guys with finger issues. I know that. Um, so I I agree. I think if you have two outstanding starters and and then two guys who can do what Gazelman did, uh, I I do think that you can be a ninety win team. But I still think the you know the the wild card here is Cespedes coming back. Um, and hope, and, and here's another thing. What you don't want is Cespedes coming back too early. So you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. You want him back as early as possible, but if you get him back too early and then he re-injures himself, well, then your season might be down the drain at that point in time. Um, switching, you, you, you used the word that, that I, I wanted to get into. You said, uh, you may, you might be looking at things too analytically. I, I don't know of anything that, uh, in my years in baseball, has taken such a foothold and that people have uh, ingested uh, so enthusiastically uh, as if it's now become the Rosetta Stone of baseball than analytics. I think I think that analytics is is as at the major league level, especially where you have so much data and you play so many you play each team so many times so that the data does have some you know a great deal of relevance. You're going to see those players over and over and over again. Um, talk to me about what you've seen. Uh, the, the impact of analytics and kind of where it's going. I, I, and, and I, I want to, I want you just to entertain this as, as a thought I have. I, I, I know nothing lasts forever and, and everything goes in cycles and nothing's new. We had analytics 40 years ago. We just didn't have numbers attributed to analytics. It was more what you saw. Um, and I, I just, is, is this, um, is is this a terminal is this a terminal disease or is this something that you at least hear whispers maybe that guys are starting to say you know what this is an awful lot to ingest at once you know this Kool-Aid that we've drank uh with such enthusiasm well it's a, another great question but i think i look at the stat war and i think of a song when i think of that war what is it good for absolutely nothing and <laughs> I really believe. I knew that. I liked you. I knew you were my kind of guy. <laughs> if your ancestors had a lineup, and I know the guy replacing him isn't going to be as good as him, I don't need a war stat to tell me that. Now I do think there are some solid analytical stats that that help. But you know, it's kind of like we all have a backyard and we have a tool shed, and we have a rake in the tool shed, and a rake is a great tool for certain things, but you wouldn't use it to you know clean your living room carpet, right? And I think, too, sabermetrics have become a crutch. Managers come into the post game when it doesn't go well for them, and they say, well, the numbers indicated we should do this. The overshifting in baseball has gone out of hand. When I grew up watching baseball, Willie McCovey got shifted. Dennis That's right. Kingman got shifted. Willie Stargell. That was about it. But this is the funny one. I see them shifting Michael Conforto. And Michael Conforto, to me, is a wall-to-wall hitter. Right, hits the ball over the Michael place. Conforto, yeah, it's, it's like a Keith Hernandez type hitter. Right. Maybe not as good as Keith, obviously, but right. that type of hitter. So you're inviting trouble there. And I just think that, you know, I think I want to see an analytic report on how many times a double play hasn't been right. done, right. executed, because you have the shortstop over by the second baseman. He's not really used to taking the ball that way. 
and throwing it from a position that he's not used to. So I do think that analytics and shifting are appropriate where the time is there, but it's not. But I think what ends up happening is, you know, a manager loses a game. They come into the media room and talk to us, and we'll ask, well, you know, why do you think this didn't work? They'll say, well, the numbers indicated they would work. And to me, when you're a manager, it can't all be about numbers. Some of it, you're around your team every day. You know what these guys are doing. You know who maybe has a little bit of a, of a cough or a cold. Mm-hmm. You know who's having personal problems. And Absolutely. Maybe that's affecting his play. And hunches. I, I got news for these sabermetric people. Joe Torrey won the 96 series because of a hunch. Yep. He decided to play Cecil Fielder instead of Tino Martinez yep. in game four of that series. And everyone remembers the Larry Toma, but it was the Fielder hit that set up the ability for the Laywood's home right. to win the game. Right. And there was not one piece of statistical evidence that would have backed him up. It was a hunch he had. And I think that we've gone away from that. We've gone away from having hunches. I will say this about Mickey Calloway. He did something last night that I've been waiting for him to do all year. Because he said it in spring training. He said he was going to not necessarily bring his closer in the ninth. Well, it made sense last night because the Mets had a lead in the eighth inning. And he brought Familia into pitch because it was the top of the order. Now, Familia ended up almost giving up a run if it wasn't for a great play from Med Rosario. And then he brought Gizelman in to finish the game. And I just think there's more. there should be more of that done. If I was a team that I knew my closer could only pitch an inning, okay, I know the formula is bring him in the ninth inning. But I got three, four, five coming up in the eighth. Don't I want my best pitcher going up against the heart of their order? And maybe my next best pitcher, six, seven, eight. And it just doesn't make sense that because the numbers indicate it to do it a certain way, that you must do it a certain way. And I go even further with this because I have a lot of Twitter followers and a lot of sabermetric fans, and they don't like when I say certain things. And I say, I use numbers too. But if you use numbers all your life, and I say this tongue in cheek, these people on Twitter, they're going to remain in their mother's basements having Salisbury steak every night. Right. Okay. Part of life is taking a chance at things. When you talk about every great sporting upset in the world, whether it's the Miracle Mets, whether it's Villanova beating Georgetown in college hoop, whether it's the Jets Super Bowl, the numbers indicated that would never happen. The greatest upsets in sports have their first um, step onto the playing field what everyone thinks the numbers say can't happen. So I'm not saying you blindly don't look at numbers. We all look at numbers. Here's another one I hate. They tell me batting average isn't important anymore. Oh, my God. I... It's on base percentage. <laughs> I can't believe okay. it. You give me four 300 hitters at the top of my order. I don't care if they're on base. is 330 or less. I'm going to win championships if my pitching is good enough. The other thing, they, they pitch counts. That's the other one that Ugh. just drives me crazy. Oh, God. Pitch counts are important to look at. When you have an injured player, I, I will grant you that that yeah. is totally important. Right. But if you've got a guy going six innings and he's thrown a hundred pitches, but they weren't high stress pitches. He didn't have a lot of runners in scoring position. He didn't, you know, they weren't high stress pitches. You got to watch the game, but you can have a guy through six innings that through 80 pitches and they're mega high stress pitches. And maybe he needs to come out of the game, but the decisions never made on, on it's made on the pitch count. And it was even sillier when they didn't have automatic intentional walks when those pitches were counting for the pitch count, too. 
So if a guy intentionally walked two or three guys in the sixth inning stretch to get out of jams, you were adding 12 pitches that had no significance and no stretch on onto the pitch count and giving it this number that you had to go by. And those are the things that, you know, peeve me about it and make me upset about it. But the bottom line here is that the managers in the postseason last year that defied the numbers won. A.J. Hinch defined the numbers. He defied it. Begrudgingly. He said, you know yes. what? <laughs> yes. I'm yeah. going to... I'm going to have 15 guys throw curveballs to the Yankee power hitters. I don't care who they are. As long as they have a functional arm and I'm going to win, I'm going to win the pennant. And he did it and he showed it. And a lot of managers wouldn't do it. And I give him a lot of credit for it because when you're a manager and do something like that, you're putting your butt on the line and it's no one else's butt you're putting on the line, but you really believe in it. And, I give A.J. Hinch a lot of credit. I, I'd have him manage my team any day of the week and seven days on Sunday. Well, and, and, and in reality, uh, as they all got rotator cuff surgery, patting themselves on the back as if they had reinvented the game after they won that World Series, they don't win that World Series if they don't do one very old school thing, which is get at the break, a guy who could throw nine innings, strike out a lot of guys, and it was a horse. In just, it was one of the greatest pitches I've seen in a long... Justin Verlander is tremendous he's the reason if they don't get him they don't beat they they don't they may not even get to the yankees um so in reality you know nothing is new casey stengel in the 50s said the most important out might be in the sixth inning why would i have my best pitcher in the bullpen when the game is on the line in the sixth inning and I'm going to say something that your Twitter fans might. I I, I I have this argument with people all the time. It's not an argument, I just, and I I know on Twitter it's everything's an argument. But I could I believe Mariano Rivera was a great, wonderful pitcher. Great, great, the greatest one inning pitcher ever, ever, no doubt. Did some amazing things. Two things about Mariano Rivera. His greatest season was 1996 when he wasn't the closer because he had an impact on more games and more innings than he ever did in his career. And while the Yankees were sweeping their way to consecutive World Series championships, how valuable could a guy who basically has a three-run lead and is pitching to the sixth, seventh, and eighth hitters in the ninth inning B. Those outs are gettable by a lot of people. That doesn't mean Mariano Rivera wasn't great. It just means you probably wasted a lot of Mariano Rivera in games where Joe could have gotten those outs. And and that's that's my issue with this inf- this this emphasis on who's pitching the ninth inning. The game might be over. Goose Gossage came into that game in 1978, I believe, in either the sixth or seventh inning and pitched the rest of the game. Why? The Red Sox were about to win the game in the seventh inning. That's when you need your best guy in the mound. Otherwise, the the horse is out of the barn and you're shutting the door. So I am in lockstep with all of this. You're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. We'll be right back. This episode of The Conversation with Tommy Weber is brought to you by 4momalz.com. Join the fight against Alzheimer's and support our good friends, Hunter and Braden Bishop, as they bring awareness to a struggle that many families face through their charity, 4mom. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at hashtag 4mom. 
And for all your mortgage needs, call Northern Security Capital Corp., the New York area's most dedicated mortgage broker. If you're buying or refinancing a home, there's only one place to go. Call Northern Security Capital Corp. today at 718-273-1010. And now, back to the show. The one thing that troubles me, I have to mention this to you because you mentioned Callaway. Well, two things that troubled me about Callaway was coming in with the whole, I'm going to love our team to a championship, I thought was probably something he could have done without saying. Number two is, a couple of nights ago, um, I think the numbers backfired on him with uh, Blevins, the lefty who can't get anybody out, let alone left-handers. And and you're right. In the post-game interview, he said... You know, the numbers said, and, and he used as a sample pool, like a guy who had 10 at-bats, which to me is not enough at-bats, I'm sorry. It's different if you have 50 at-bats, but 10 at-bats might just mean, you know, you're, you're due. Um, and he said, and when the numbers, I'm going to stick with the numbers, and when the numbers tell me, I'm going to do it again. Because more times than not, I'm going to be right. Well, that doesn't cut it for me, because... You can't afford to lose those games. It doesn't matter what the numbers say. You know you've got a guy, especially relief pitchers, who really go up and down from year to year, as we see a lot. These middle relief guys, one year they have a fantastic year. The next year, you know, they're in a the doghouse. You've got to really take the temperature of those guys and say, you know what? I know what the history says, but right now, do I really want this guy on the mound in the most important situation in the game? And that's where you have to discard the numbers. And and I don't, I, it is a hunch, but a hunch sounds like a guess. A hunch is an informed decision you're making based on what you know and all your experience. And if that's not why you pay a manager, then take some guy, give him $75,000, stick him in the dugout with a computer, and he could make all the decisions you need to make based on the numbers. And I agree with you totally. And I think what Callaway did is he let one time when he went with a hunch in Philadelphia, and he didn't bring Blevins in to pitch to Nick Williams, and he left Seawall then. Right. Seawall gave him a homer, made a bad pitch. I still don't think that was the wrong move. I, I still think that the way Blevins had been pitching, the hunch I would have is leave Seawall in the game. So let's now take it up another a week to this week. He had a similar situation, only this time he had Gazelman on the mound. It was even more of a reason to leave Gazelman in, even against the lefty, because you had righties behind him, and he really didn't have the confidence of. A.J. Ramos at the time, whether because he's hurt or whether because he was pitching poorly. He leave Gazelman in the game there, but he, he didn't do it because I think he was afraid that the media would say, oh, you've done this. You didn't learn from your stupid mistake. You did it again. In the meantime, both of those times, I would have left the right-hander in to pitch to the left-handed hitter because you just get the sense Gazelman and, and you know, Gazelman and Seawold are pitching better than Blevins right now. And I think he had the right decision-making in Philadelphia and it backfired on him and really the media was all over him. And I think there was part of him that wanted to say, I don't want to hear from the media again. So I'll not bring Blevins in to pitch to, I think it was Freeman. He pitched to, I think when you think about that, you know, he had a great way of leading a team and not even so much in 2015, 2016, Terry Collins did one of the greatest managerial jobs. They played for him. They played for Terry Collins. They never quit on Terry Collins. Terry Collins did a great, that's what you want from your manager. His team never quit on him. And, 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 you know, and the bottom line is that a lot of guys have, you know, came through the managerial door, whether it be Shea Stadium or City Field, and only a handful have left with a pennant, and he's one of them. And, and I think that, you know, 
he he put together players that believe in him. He had great leaders in that clubhouse, whether it was Kadir in 2015 or the David Wrights or the Curtis Grandersons. Those guys were always great leaders. I think the Mets are suffering a little bit right now because Todd Frazier is not around every day. He was one leader. Jay Bruce is having a bad season so far. It's hard to lead when you're doing that. Um, they obviously missed the leadership of David Wright big time. So I think that, you know, guys in that locker room that have started to become leaders is Drupal Cabrera's one. And I, I want to talk about his Drupal Cabrera because Mets fans in the offseason have been so wrong about this guy now twice. Okay. When the Mets signed him, what did they do and put him at shortstop? He had a great season at shortstop. Right. In 2016. Last year he had a poor year and they moved him to, you know, they moved him to third, they moved him to second. There was talk they wanted to, he wanted an option. Well, when the season came, every Mets fan I know didn't want him back. They wanted everyone else for the position other than him. Kipnis, anyone that could play the position. Right. But I, I'll tell you this right now. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if, as Drupal Cabrera is at the All-Star game this year. Yeah, and he is off to a great, he is having fun, a great season. He's a phenomenal player. He's he's a baseball player. Yes, he is. He's a throwback to, to you know, when we were kids, they were baseball yeah. players. Very smart baseball player yep. Yep. that knows how to win and knows how to help his team. And I'll tell you, that's one of them. This is where Saber Metrics, I, I bring this to them. I love D.D. Gregorius. I think he's a good player. But when he had that big April... There are people who are actually saying he's going to be better than Derek Jeter. I, I was hearing that from people in the media. I understand fans saying it, but right. columnists, oh, he's going to be better than Derek Jeter. Yeah. And I said, you know, you got to realize one thing. The Hall of Fame is filled with people that were 300 hitters. That means they fail 70% of the time. It, it's going to come back. Now, I didn't think it was going to come back this quickly and in this profound, like at one point he was a one for 51 at the plate. I didn't think it was going to happen like that. But you knew that there'd be a downtick in it. And I'll tell you another stat I hate. This three-word stat is the worst stat ever created at this pace. Oh, God, please. It, it, it's please. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know, when you look at a baseball season, let's say your goals were 90 games. You think you were 90 games, should get a player spot. You may not want a division, but you should get at least a wild card spot. That's 18 games over 500. And here's where I get the sabermetric counts because I'm just doing easy division and they have trouble following me because I'm not talking about BABIPs and war stats. But if you take a six-month season, that means you have to average three games over 500 a month. It's only 90 games. That means if you have a bad month like the Mets are having in May, you have to have a good month, which they had in April. Right. So right now, the Mets are one over them. They're probably behind where they need to be. You would want to be about six games over 500, but that doesn't mean they can't get to that point. And that doesn't mean everything that was in June happens in June is going to be totally different than what happened in May. It's the length of a baseball season. And I think what people have done in the media is they want to make baseball football. I understand why in the NFL. Well, that's that's the game. The first two games at home, you're dead. I get it. But that's the game. I don't get it when you say that in baseball. That's the game from. Every amateur level straight up now. Baseball's become an event game. It's you know, it's baseball has its own sense of combine, skills, auditioning, uh, showcasing. It's not about whether or not you're a great player. When you mention a guy like Derek Jeter, history's gonna be very kind to Derek Jeter because like a lot of great players before him, 
you know, like I, I talk about Ozzy Smith a lot. I saw, I saw two players play who I think played a position that no one has ever played like them. Johnny Bench and, and Ozzy Smith. I've never seen anybody play the positions like them. There were players who were great, but like them, I've never seen. And I say this all the time. You know, people talk about he's another Ozzy Smith or he's another Johnny Bench. Derek Jeter, I could make an argument, was not the greatest player of all time. But Derek Jeter may have had all things being equal, all things being equal and considered. Money, fame, New York City, winning, virtuosity on the field, never a whiff of trouble off the field, captain of the greatest team, you know, in, in uh, greatest sports franchise in the world. I think Derek Jeter has had the greatest baseball career of anyone who has ever played the game. All things being considered, he's not the best player ever, but he's had the greatest career ever. And Jeter did things that you just don't see anymore. He got over 300 infield hits. Why? He ran every ball out hard. You do not see that anymore. It's now, you listen to a broadcast, and guys who should know better, and this is something I wanted to touch upon with you, and I like, look, I watched Keith Hernandez play. I think Keith Hernandez was one of the great players I ever saw because Keith Hernandez was like a manager on the field. You just don't see guys like that anymore, and he's the greatest first baseman I ever saw by a long stretch. But these guys should know better. They're stewards of the game, and they are now... They're now, their silence is telling you that what you see on the field, you're really not seeing. And they should be calling guys out because running hard is like a luxury now. You know, he, he picked up the pace to make it to second base. There's two reasons why there's no triples anymore. Number one, the ballparks are tiny. And number two, everybody waits to see where the ball winds up before they decide that they're going to run hard to first base. So when you talk about a guy like Jeter, I don't know that we're going to see the likes of him ever again. And you're right. We are prisoners of the present. You watch an NBA game, a guy makes a three-point shot, they're trying. They're starting to tell you whether or not he's the greatest player of all time or not. I mean, it's really amazing with what social media has done. It's made us prisoners of the present. That's just it my really take. really has, and I, 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 and I think it's one of the bad things about it. It, it really has. And you're right about at this pace. Yeah. If I get two hits at this pace, I'm going to get 600 hits. Well, nobody's ever done that. And that kind of, I'm glad because this transitions into my next um, topic, which I had a kid on my Cape Cod team who today tweeted, uh, Barry Bonds is probably the greatest hitter of all time. And I said, you know what? When Ben Johnson gets his 1988 gold medal back and Lance Armstrong's eight Tour de France wins are reinstated, it is then and only then that I could lend any legitimacy to anything that Barry Bonds has ever done. I, I, I can't believe, and I have no personal issue with Barry Bonds. He was a magnificent player before any of this, okay, before he turned 35. He was a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer. But I cannot believe the groundswell of support and sympathy for a guy who, if he were in any other sport, if he were in any other sport, he would be persona non grata. There would be no mention of him made in the record books, as is the case in cycling or Olympic sports. Speak to me about how somehow, and I see a lot of writers and a lot of guys on MLB who all of a sudden are genuflecting at the altar of a guy who really thumbed his nose at the history of the game. He really did. And, you know, it is amazing that in baseball, we have the hits leader, the home run leader, and the strikeout leader, and none of them are in the Hall of Fame. And I think the worst of them is Clemens. Uh, you know, because Clemens, he had no problem throwing his wife under the bus. 
when he was saying that the steroid injections were for her. <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, listen. It just shows great, you the goal. Her. It shows you the goal. Look, they pointed, they, they testified, you know, I, and, and, and look, none of them are heroes. And there are no, I, I mean, baseball players aren't heroes. They're athletes. And they're basically, as my friend once said, they're dancing bears. And I appreciate the, they're entertainers as far as I'm concerned. But, but if it wasn't for Jose Canseco, you would never have had drug testing in Major League Baseball. The players wanted nope. I remember Gene Orza saying, it's kind of like smoking cigarettes. It really doesn't have an impact on you. I remember seeing him say that. Don Fear said that we will at no point include in the basic agreement anything having to do with drug testing. We're not doing it. It took an act of Congress almost. An act of Congress. And, if, and yeah. Jose Canseco was the catalyst to get them in front of Congress to testify. Had that not happened, you would never have had drug testing in baseball. And what you have now is still somewhat of a sham because it's not the Olympic standard. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling that Robinson Cano getting caught is, a, is, it's like when you see two ants in your house and you kill them. You're under the impression you've killed all the ants in your house. Well, there's a thousand lurking someplace else. And I think that's, in my opinion, what you're seeing here with, uh, with the Cano revelation. Well, I agree. And I think that one of the things that, you know, I can tell you is that then you have people insinuating players took steroids when they have no proof of it. Right. Like and, Sarah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's really, it's really something, you know, something fierce to say. Um, and I think that one of the problems is that, Everyone turned their back in the in the mid nineties, and I re, I remember being in mid spring training. I think it was nineteen eighty eight, and Lenny Dykstra oh walked into God. the spring training camp, oh. and and <laughs> I couldn't even recognize it was him. Oh my God! What a oh my God! That was unbelievable. Brady Anderson, and same he, thing. He did it, and and you know, listen. And the bottom line is. I feel I feel bad for pitchers who the thin pitchers like the Greg Maddoxes of the world and the Tom Glavins. How great would they have, they've been if there were no steroids on the hitters that were throwing pitches to? That's why I mean, you could make a strong argument for Greg Maddox being the greatest pitcher of all time. Because if you look at his numbers, first of all, relative to the league, and look at what was happening offensively in the league at the same time, it's mind-boggling how good that guy was. Mind-boggling. It really is. Because guys are hitting 60 home runs. It was like a 58 to Sean Green, 50. I mean, it was absurd. It was... And, and, and I... I just can't believe that guys who should know better, the MLB network, these guys are now genuflecting to players who, come on. And I, I mean, I remember a doctor friend of mine said, you know how you know if somebody's on steroids? Just look at them. You could tell. I mean, the, the body, bodies don't change like that overnight. I mean, we're, we're not full. I want to shift gears here really quickly. Um, I, I, I want to lighten it up a little bit. You are a lifelong um, New York sports fan. Um uh, and, and you've worked in sports your whole entire life. Um, give me your three dinner guests. Hmm. That's a great question. And they have to be sports related, right? No, no, absolutely not. Mine, I'll tell well, you the I truth. Mean, if, I, if, if I was going to, I mean, if I was going to have a dinner guest, Jesus Christ would have to be at the dinner table. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, right. let's have it be alive. Well, okay. I, I'm technically, you know, we, I guess, did you go to Catholic school? 
Uh, well, I'm a born again Christian now, but yeah, I did go to Catholic school. Okay, so, so technically, we technically we we consider Christ is alive. <laughs> so, but but let's let's leave Jesus out of this, and let's leave anybody who's not alive. He's got to be living. Well, let's leave it at sports, mm-hmm. and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll I'll leave it at that. Go. I think, and I'm trying to because most players that are alive, I've talked to already. Um, I think I'd have to have Wayne Gretzky at that table. My God, how good was that guy? Because. Because what he did was like a baseball player hitting 400 six straight years. Yeah, yeah, it was insane. So I would want to, I would want to have him at the dinner table. The other guy I want at the dinner table is Tom Seaver, oh. and oh. I think when I grew up, and I wrote about this in my book, First Black Revolution. Three, there were four athletes that I admired to no end: it was Seaver, Joe Namath, Clyde, and Muhammad Ali. Now, most people in my neighborhood, even though I grew up in the Bronx, agree with the first three, but they had trouble with a white kid loving Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And I loved him because he was a great boxer, and I believed in what he was right. believing in. Okay? But I think that, you know, Seaver would have to be at that dinner table, along with Wayne Gretzky. And um, I have to say Joe Willie Namath would have to be there, too. Because I know that if I have dinner with Joe Namath and that group, I know we're also going to have a lot of fun meeting women after dinner. Absolutely. So Absolutely. That's probably Good what call. I want to do it Good as call. Well. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's a great call. Uh, by the way, yes, I, I was remiss in mentioning the book is Press Boxer Revolution, How Sports Reporting Has Changed Over the Past 30 Years by Rich Catino. Where can we get the book? You can get it on Amazon.com, and I want to let you guys know a second book's coming out. Um... Next April, I'm going to do a 50-year retrospective on the Miracle Mets of 69. Wow. Obviously, next year, 2019, will be 50 years. But so many books are coming out about that, and I want to do it a little differently. So I want to take you through the eyes of me as a nine-year-old kid and how I lived through it. I went to so many games that year because a, a neighbor had season tickets, and me and my dad and my best friend and my best friend's dad went to maybe 30 Met games that year. So it's your Billy Crystal's 61. It's your Billy Crystal's 61. That is obviously through the eyes of a, a nine-year-old boy. Billy Crystal did that movie. That's a, great way, that's a great way of describing it. But I also want to talk about how tumultuous the times were socially then. Absolutely, yeah. And how yeah. everybody can kind of come together and say, okay, I don't believe in the war, I do. But you know what, let's watch the Met game and let's stop to talk for three hours. And I think that, or, or in those days, it's actually two and a half hours. But I think that, you know, one of the things I want to talk about is how it bridged generations at a time when generations were being destroyed. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, I've talked to a lot of players already. Um, I've talked to Wayne Garrett. I've talked to Boswell. I've talked to Jerry Grody, Jerry Kuzman. Seaver and I have a a time that we're going to try to talk. I've talked to Joan Hodges and, I think too, if I could, if I could have Gil Hodges at that dinner table, that's another guy I'd want to have because I think it's an abomination he's not in the Hall of Fame, and he did so much as a manager, and unfortunately his his life was short, yep. short because he had a heart attack in '68, and you wonder what would have happened in the Met organization had Hodges 
been alive and stayed as manager. I'll go this far. I don't think M. Donald Graham would ever been get would ever have been able to get away with trading Tom Stever yeah. if Gil Hodges was in the organization. And it's amazing how those things all kind of, you know, a domino effect with an organization. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, Gil taught me in watching the game, and you gotta remember when we were kids, every game was on TV. Sometimes you and your friends' garage listening on the radio and you learned about the game better that way. And you learned why the platoon system worked. And you learned why Gil used it with certain players and didn't use it with other players. He used it. He didn't use it with Cleon. He didn't use it with AG. He didn't use it with Grody or Harrelson. But he used it in the right field with Swoboda and Archamsky. Yep. He used it at first with Clendenin and Cranepool because those guys he felt were guys that had to be, they couldn't play 150, 160 games. And there's a special type of manager that can recognize that. And, and let's go back to what we were talking before. He didn't need a statue to recognize No, it. he didn't. He was able to see it. Absolutely. Absolutely, because he's at every game. Of course he's going to see it. Nobody sees it better than somebody who's sitting in the dugout watching every single game. You get a real feel. You're able to take the temperature of your club. And you're able to, as you said, you know all the nuances. You know what's going on. You know all the gossip, whose wife is being a pain in the neck to them, and whose girlfriend showed up the same day their wife did. You know, there's a lot of stuff that happens that nobody knows about that goes into who should be where. Uh, on any given day. I um I, I I think that's a fab I cannot wait to see that book. And I'm not a Met fan. I mean my 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 brother's a Met fan. You know, everybody else in my family is a Met fan, so of course I was a Yankee fan. A chance encounter with Mickey Mantle, seeing Mickey Mantle and meeting him at seven years old will make you a, a Yankee fan forever. And that's what happened to me. Um we got your three dinner guests. So I guess I can infer from your your take that if I gave you a vote, um okay, Hodges is in. Are the steroid guys all out? And do you believe this? And Um, and I I want one caveat to that question. Do you believe, as I do, that the players have earned and worked very hard to lose the presumption of innocence during that period? They did. I, I will say this before I answer the question. Major League Baseball could do a better job at this, but they're doing far better than the NFL does. The NFL gets skeets away with this. You, you can't tell me Michael Strahan wasn't on roids. Look at him now. Okay? And so, I, I, could baseball do better? Absolutely. But baseball does a much better job than the NFL. But I will, but I will say this about steroids. If you're going to say none of them are in, then you can't even consider Andy Pettit. I agree. I don't, I don't think Andy Pettit's a Hall of Famer anyway. I think Andy Pettit was an excellent pitcher for a very long time. The Hall of Fame to me is not about guys who had great careers. It's about guys who were great players. And there's a big difference. A lot of guys, listen, Paul O'Neill had a great career. He wasn't a great player. He was a very, very good player for a very long period of time and a great Yankee. He had a wonderful Yankee career, but I don't believe he's a Hall of Famer. My, my, my litmus test for Hall of Fame is when I, you mention this guy's name, I say he was great. If I don't say he was great, he can't get in. And I don't think Andy Pettit was great. I think, you know, obviously he pitched very well, uh, you know, on, on, on the grand stage and you saw him a lot. In, in fact, he wasn't nearly as clutch a pitcher as people perceive him to be. His postseason numbers are almost exactly identical to his regular season numbers, but he pitched in some of the most important games the Yankees have played in the last 20 years and won. And I, and I get that. So I, I don't even believe, and I agree, I don't think Pettit should be in. 
I don't. And I don't think you need to have evidence, you know, the smoking gun or somebody's name be on a list. I mean, to me, David Ortiz is another guy. It's clearly, you know, to me, it's readily apparent that this is a guy who did stuff that other guys were doing. Um, And, you know, he's a guy somehow, I don't know how he sort of has escaped uh, being labeled such. Maybe it's because he came out so adamantly about it and people are afraid of him, but I'm not. So I'll I'll say it. Um, And and I'm I'm with you. So um, I I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but please continue on that train of thought with respect to guys. Well, and I I, I, I agree on Pettit, by the way. I'll say this is growing up a Mets fan. You give me a call about Pettit and get you in the Hall of Fame when you get Jerry Kuzman in there first, and then we'll talk about it. Oh, Jerry Kuzman was a better pitcher. Jerry Kuzman was a better pitcher than Andy Pettit. He was. He was a better pitcher than Andy Pettit. I, 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 you know, I like Pettit. Really good, tough guy. You know, hung in there, grinded. But you know, um, I, I just don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I agree, and I'm objective. I, 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 I you know, Kuzman, forget about it. Kuzman and Seaver were were ridiculous. Uh, so you would be for everybody being out then. I would. Um, and I think that, you know, and the other thing about this whole thing is when you start putting some of them in, how do you then validate that Pete Rose isn't in? I agree. I mean, you know, I, I, I know he did a terrible thing. I know betting on baseball and people say, well, he, he didn't bet against his own team, but managers can alter things because of the way they're betting. So, you know, I certainly get it, but if you're going to, if you're going to take a look at, you know, leaving a guy out of the Hall of Fame for steroids, or, or, or should I say, putting a guy in who did steroids, then you have to say that Pete Rose can get in. And until you say that, I can't consider any of the Roy guys in. I like that. I'm going to use that. That's great. That's great. Rich, we are, uh, unfortunately, this is a conversation we must pick up. But first of all, before your book comes out, we are going to do a whole show on the 69 Mets because uh, we both lived through it. Uh, we're two New Yorkers. I remember what that was like riding on the school bus and, you know, having my, uh, you know, those were World Series games played during the day, by the way, people. There actually was a time where a World Series game was played in daylight and didn't end at 20 after 12, uh, which is another issue I'd love to know how so many smart guys are convened at the Major League Baseball office on Park Avenue, and they are so tone deaf to what the public likes and doesn't like. I mean, to me, it's just amazing uh, how they get it wrong so often, instant replay being one of those things. But that's going to be for another day. We are going to pick up this conversation again. Rich, I cannot tell you how terrific this conversation really was i want to do this for hours the book press box revolution how sports reporting has changed over 30 years rich catino uh look for the book coming out in april on the miracle mets um rich we've got to get together again i'm going to be in cape cod i'm going to be doing the show from cape cod i want to have you on um safe travel with the mets and i can't thank you enough uh for being my guest no problem. Anytime is my pleasure. We'll do this again. It's been a lot of fun. You bet, man. Be well. Be well. Take care. Thanks.
Rich Catino with us. What a terrific show. I, I, I really, uh, so many great insights on a guy who's been around forever. He's seen everything in New York baseball and sports in general. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed it. By the time you see or hear this, um, the Major League Baseball amateur draft will have taken place. And uh, many players that we had the pleasure of managing and coaching in Cape Cod and, and elsewhere are, are eligible for that draft. And I only hope that uh, by the time you hear this, all of them uh, have been selected and are now pursuing the, the next phase of their careers. Um, my, my best wishes are with them. And we're all uh, a little nervous, a little on edge, uh, anticipating the draft. But for all you guys, I just want you to know that, uh, um, you know, you're in my heart and I'm, I'm rooting for you as I always do. Uh, that's going to be a wrap um, from the Gotham Podcast Studios here in New York City. Happy birthday, Dad. I love you. Thanks for listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. Have any thoughts on today's episode? Ideas for a new one? Join the conversation on Twitter at Tommy Weber B-Ball or Instagram at Tommy Weber Baseball and share your thoughts. Tommy's back next week with a new episode of The Conversation. Subscribe and listen for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Stitcher. And of course, always at TommyWeberBaseball.com. Come.